This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. This year marks the centennial of America's national parks. On the show today, we will look back at the struggle to find a balance between a growing population and economy and preserving our natural heritage. We also will look ahead and discuss the future of land conservation in the era of climate disruption. We will talk about the future of family farms and parks, and whether they can continue to coexist peacefully in West Marin and other parts of the country. Joining our live audience, we're pleased to have with us two authors with deep knowledge of America's efforts to preserve and manipulate nature. Jordan Fisher-Smith worked for 21 years as a park ranger in California, Wyoming, Idaho, and Alaska. He's narrator of a documentary about Lyme disease titled Under Our Skin. He's author of Nature Noir about plans to dam the north and middle forks of the American River, and most recently, Engineering Eden, the true story of a violent death, a trial, and the fight over controlling nature. John Hart writes prolifically about beauty and nature in Northern California and beyond. He's author of Walking Softly in the Wilderness, the Sierra Club Guide to Backpacking, and An Island in Time, 50 Years of the Point Reyes National Seashore. He has won the California Book Award from the Commonwealth Club for two of his books, Farming on the Edge, Saving Family Farms in Ruin County, and Storm Over Mono. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Jordan Fisher-Smith, let's begin with you. You were actually climbing with John Hart uh, one time when you were both young. So tell us how that sort of helped uh, shape your careers and the things we're going to talk about today. I think John had a, you know, as an older guy, and I think when, when you're in your 20s, a few years is kind of a big deal. And I was actually only 19, I think, when I met John, and I, if I remember right, around the practice rocks where climbers go in the Bay Area. Uh, Indian Rock. Uh, That's probably right. This is before like the that. era of the climbing yeah. gyms. And we were both <laughs> probably in the, yeah, before climbing gyms. That's mm-hmm. right. We were in the uh, Sierra, Sierra Club uh, rock climbing section together. And, uh, and started doing trips together. And so... Um, you came across some people that were doing something you thought was wrong, and you intervened. We did. <laughs> or I tried to. And that was the beginning of my education. Lyle Fork of the Tuolumne. That's yes. right. Mm-hmm. So John and I were on our way up to do a climb called the Dana uh, Kowar, which is an, uh, an ice climb um, in, in the Dana Cirque. Those of you who have been up there know these beautiful whitebark pines that grow at treeline, and they are sculpted by the wind and by this heavy weather and, you know, needles of, of wind-driven ice all winter into these really curvaceous, beautiful <laughs> forms. And uh, we were sort of kind of moving uphill, clanking with equipment. We had loaded with ice screws and ropes and stuff like, you know, that makes a clanking sound that's very romantic at that time. And, and, uh, 
And, uh, and we heard Climbers some banging like noise. Yeah, we heard this banging noise. And, and we came uphill, and we saw these two guys with a hatchet hacking the heart out of this 400-year-old white bark pine. And um, I was seized with the desire to give them a campfire talk. They, they had a big fire there. It was an area that fires weren't allowed, and they were destroying this tree to feed this fire. And the, the, the hearts of those trees is really, they're pitchy, and they burn really well. And so I kind of launched into a talk and thought that I would just, you know, through the force of my personality and my missionary zeal, would convince them to stop. And th- what they said to us, I can't repeat, because we're going to be on TV or something, but... <laughs> It wasn't very friendly, and they basically said, you know, get out of our camp and leave us alone or we'll beat you up. And we had these, you know, ice axes, and they just had their fists, and, but it wasn't going to go that way. So we just kind of slunk out of there. And, uh, and I remember that very well, being the first moment. I thought, man, if I only had a, you know, a ranger uniform and a ticket book, I would put an end to this right now. And you had another incident where you had that, that ticket book, or you, or you had an encounter with someone where you did apply uh, those tools that you later acquired. I did, and it didn't go well. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was, uh, at that time, I thought, you know, I was so impressed myself when I see these rangers, these men and women with the gold badge and the beautiful uniform and the flat hat and everything. I would think just the sheer authority of this person would be likely to, to win everybody over. Uh, without any violence or anything. And so um, I, you know, I, I think I was now, three years later, I ended up in the Tetons with such a uniform and a little, you know, I still had this idea, a little pink piece of paper you tore off this thing and handed to somebody would stop everything that was going badly. And of course, I, I, I walked into this uh, camp full of these uh, fundamentalist, you know, uh, anti-federal government uh, sagebrush rebellion guys in, in Idaho and a shoving match ensued and I was getting shoved a lot and not doing much of the shoving and they later complained that I had brandished an axe at them which I didn't do but it didn't go well and I realized that you know you really couldn't necessarily enforce the law with just this uniform and that was the beginning of my descent into this inferno this, that I describe in Nature Noir. One of the, the characters, let's talk about uh, one of the key points in, in that book, uh, in, in Engineering Eden. Uh, tell us about Harry Walker and, and what happened to him. Well, Harry Walker was this wonderful young guy. He was a farmer from Alabama who more or less walked into the middle of, of, of a great controversy in American National Park and Wilderness Management, with, unbeknownst to him. He was 25, and he left home on the Great American Road Trip, and he wound up in Yellowstone National Park, in the middle of the 100th anniversary of the park. And uh, unfortunately, right in the middle of festivities, he was dragged away screaming into the woods and eaten by a grizzly bear. His parents were induced by an animal rights and, and, and environmental activist to sue the federal government. And these Alabama farmers who had never uh, so much as contested a traffic ticket wound up facing the federal government in this great lawsuit over what you do to make nature natural again when it gets unnatural. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and, 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 and their side of the suit was that essentially maintained that the government had killed Harry Walker by trying to uh, restore the grizzly bear to naturalness. John Hart, uh, what does this story say to you? A lot of this is about predators and how predators, apex predators in parks, uh, how the parks have done in terms of their relationship with apex predators, trying to contain them, suppress them, bring them back. Well, I think probably everyone here agrees with the idea of preserving nature. Uh, 
when you unpack that, it turns out to be a very, very complicated thing to do yeah. with many different ideas about how to do it. In the early days, the, the uh, uh, hoped-for approach was simply to draw a line around something and keep the bad stuff out and, uh, and assume that all would be well. Um, and sometimes it worked, but uh, because of all the other things we were doing simultaneously to the environment, notably uh, urbanizing large parts of it, turning large parts of it into uh, industrial-scale farms, breaking up habitats, building roads, etc., etc., you were dealing with fragments of a broken system and trying to make each fragment stand on its own as something whole and perfect. And you ran into all kinds of trouble, of which the uh, the prey-predator uh, balance problem is a prime example. Uh, may I say, I think sure. it's also worth noting that, you know, the, the, the first national park, Yellowstone, 1872, was made sort of before the science of ecology was made. So here... Uh, you know, the science of ecology becomes itself, becomes a discernible field with its own professional association uh, around the same time as atomic physics becomes a science. That's kind of late in history for human, for the good of everything. And I think that was part of what, what happened to the National Park. And you write about there's this tension between hands-on human manipulation and hands-off exclusion of human interest. So right. John Hart... Let's hear you, and then, and then uh, we'll hear from Jordan in terms of that tension back and forth is managing nature as just sort of to kind of hands-on bring it back or totally hands-off. Well, Jordan brings out uh, a famous statement by uh, Zanizer, is it? Uh, Howard Zanizer. Yeah, Zanizer. Executive director of uh, the Secretary uh, of Wilderness. Who was a, a leader in the act to create the law called the Wilderness Act. Um, saying that we should be uh, guardians, not gardeners. And I think that's, that encapsulates a tension that runs through all of these, these fields, all of these, 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 these struggles. And some feel or hope that, as I say, if you just exclude the bad stuff, um, nature, even damaged nature, will repair itself. Others say, no, it's, uh, it's not going to work. Uh, you have to actively manage everything. And I think my, my personal, I've struggled with this stuff for years and years and years as a wilderness advocate, also uh, uh, favorably inclined towards sustainable agriculture, uh, being aware that, after all, 90% of our land is never going to be wilderness again, it, we have to live in it, we have to manage it, we have to work with it. Uh, I, I've just realized that, that perhaps both gardening and being a guardian uh, are appropriate at different times and places, and that they both are components of what we can simply call stewardship. Stewardship being sometimes to back way off and sometimes to wade in. Jordan Fisher-Smith, you write about uh, Starker Leopold, and he presented for the first time a unified theory of modern ecological management, Uh, and fire is a big part of that. Yeah, well, Starker was, uh, by and large, Starker is largely forgotten. He was uh, Aldo Leopold's oldest son, 
uh, Aldo Leopold died rather young and didn't finish some of the things that he was interested in doing, notably uh, bringing back predators and, uh, and bringing back fire. And, uh, and Starker sort of seamlessly continued his work and realized a lot of what he was trying to do. So he uh, set out to bring the, the management of parks up to modern standards. And he said, look, you can't abandon these things sort of spiritually to the forces that shaped a continent because they're tiny shreds. Even Yellowstone, 2.2 million acres, isn't a complete ecosystem. So like it or not, we are going to have to do stuff to keep it lively and to keep, to keep things alive, to save things, and to keep it functioning as naturally as possible. It's interesting, if I may cut in there, there's, there's a, a new countercurrent of writers who are saying... Uh, the important thing about wilderness and parks is not to manage them, and we don't care what happens. Let nature sort it out in evolutionary time. What we want is to be in a place where humans are doing nothing. And, and, if it, and if it takes over, and if it turns into a broom plantation, or if velvet grass takes over Point Reyes, so be it. That's what the evolutionary gods want. Let nature take its course. If you're just joining us at Climate One today, we're talking with John Hart, the author of Farming on the Edge, and Jordan Fisher-Smith, author most recently of Engineering Eden. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk a little bit more about fire. Fires have been ravaging the American West lately. We now have a year-round fire season. And is that, Jordan Fisher-Smith, partly because of this suppression of fire, that this is coming home to roost? It is partly, but you know we're also seeing climate extremes that are driving the fire process, and it, you know it's bigger than we are, and it's ultimately bigger than our management than any kind of management that we've got. We see a lot of efforts right now being made along roads, and there's actually some going on in Point Reyes and other parks around the Bay Area to reduce fire hazard along the roads. You'll see uh, underbrush cut out. You'll see. Uh, some mastication where the, you know, the things that we're growing there, the brush has been chewed up into wood chips. But you can't really do this to whole forests. And what we're about to see and what we're seeing right now is a, a sort of change in state. It's going to be something other than what it is now. Um, and we probably can't stop that other than to do everything that you've been trying to promote about controlling our carbon output as soon as possible. But, but this transition in forests, uh, species are generally going to be moving up in their ranges. Uh, some things that grow in a place now, if they burn down, might not grow back there. Um, we're seeing a great change in state, and this fire is part of that process. You were in Yellowstone for a long time, a big uh, fire in Yellowstone in the late 80s, I think it was. People were really upset. But now you go to Yellowstone, a lot of it's back. That was a natural thing. But that- well, and there's concern that the whole thing can happen again because uh, at one time we think that these... Uh, and this is a case where fire suppression has something to do with it, that you know, at one time the woods were very patchy. You had these different... You know, a lightning strike here in damp conditions which smoldered and burned a couple of acres, another one over here, a big fire over there. And one thing that fire suppression did do is and the kind of forestry we've been practicing where we plant, you know, we were planting even-age stands of single species, like the Douglas fir plantations of the Northwest one sees in, you know, in Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. What you see is, uh, is a kind of unification of the, of the landscape, which does have a tendency to go big in fire. 
and the patchiness actually helps. John Hart, do you think that, uh, how would you change fire management? Would you let them, let them burn? Obviously, it gets political and dicey when there's structures and human you know, property value. That makes it difficult. Otherwise, we could just let them burn, but people's houses are in the way. Well, I'm no expert on this, but uh, uh, the, the, the Yellowstone bear example and also what you tell Jordan about fire management in Sequoia uh, reminds us that it can be tricky to make abrupt changes to simply decide, okay, now we're going to uh, stop feeding garbage to the bears. Now we're going to stop putting out any fires. Uh, it's, it's trickier than that. But obviously getting back to a more natural fire regime over some period of time is one thing we have to do. Can, can it's one of the many things we should have done already, and now it becomes even more imperative. Jordan Fisher-Smith. You know, um, there's a kind of... Uh, in the book, there's, there's, there's something about prescribed fire, about the, the process of intentionally setting fires and burning under conditions that are closely regulated. Um, and, you know, the, you know, when we had the Rim Fire west of Yosemite that burned up through the Stanislaus National Forest, I think what a lot of people don't know is what happened when it hit the park. Uh, in this book, I talk a little bit about Starker Leopold's initiative to get fire back in the parks and to bring the forest back into shape by intentional burning. Well, you know, the, the National Park Service had been doing this since uh, 1968. Uh, and in, in that big Yosemite fire, when the fire got up into Yosemite, uh, close to the Rockefeller Grove, Yosemite actually benefited from all the firework they'd done. And uh, uh, they went out there, they did a little more burning and prep, and when that fire came in, it just died right down as it hit some of the work they'd been doing. Uh, I'd like to see the Park Service having a greater commitment right now to continuing the prescribed fire, but that is something that can be done. It is, you know, experts almost universally say that, that prescribed fire has a definite role to play in adapting forests to face this great threat that we're seeing. We're talking about national parks and climate change and other topics with John Hart uh, and Jordan Fisher-Smith. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, We're going to pivot now to something mentioned earlier, Point Reyes. Uh, For decades, the establishment of uh, national parks was about setting aside beautiful remote places like Yellowstone or Yosemite, far from urban centers. But as examined in the documentary Rebels with a Cause, that started to change in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1950s. Take a listen to environmentalist Huey Johnson and narrator Francis McDormand. There are not many cities in the world that have such a remarkable landscape near a great urban center like this, free to use, I mean, you don't have to own a ranch in Northern California to enjoy walking in the wild. How did they do it? Between the 1950s and the 1970s, when California was the nation's fastest-growing state and cities were gobbling up nearby forests and fields, ordinary people in the San Francisco Bay Area saved a vast stretch of coastline north of the Golden Gate Bridge for parks and farms. Their efforts fostered a national movement to preserve open spaces near where people live. 
That's the documentary Rebels with a Cause. John Hart, uh, you wrote a book about the creation of creation story of that, that area, Point Reyes National Seashore. So a lot of it was uh, some deals between ranchers and environmentalists. And so tell us that story and also how it uh, set something larger in motion. That story goes back in a way to the U.S. Army um, in the last century, but one, uh, because uh, the cornerstone of the vast greenbelt was actually set around the Golden Gate in military set-asides. And uh, there were several other phases that preserved the possibility of the greenbelt we have. The one we're talking about is the big addition of Point Reyes, and that was, uh, got started under President uh, Kennedy. President Nixon moved it along. It was first proposed uh, in the Roosevelt era. <laughs> uh, nothing happened. Uh, it was revived in the, in the late 50s. Um, a local congressman, Clem Miller, is the great hero of that story. Uh, and for various reasons, it was decided that um, it would be best uh, to leave the uh, best ranch lands in place within the boundaries of the park as working ranches. There were several reasons for this, not all philosophical. One of them was money. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't plan to buy them at first. And one of them was political. It blunted one of the sources of opposition. But nonetheless, uh, the ranches stayed and later were fully incorporated into the park. And there was quite a, a feeling uh, at a certain period in history that, that this problem had been well managed, that uh, the farms belonged in the park, that there was a symbiosis, uh, that everyone was reasonably happy. That would decay somewhat later. But it left Point Reyes as an anomaly in the national park system. It wasn't technically a national park. There were several varieties of system members, but it was nonetheless in the system, and it was the only large area in the system where the continuation of commercial agriculture was contemplated. And that has been a source of tension and frustration on some parts ever since. And there's current litigation going on about that, so tell us what's going on there. Well, the as we were Remarking earlier, the environmental movement is anything but a monolith. It has many, many strains, many, many opinions about everything. And one area in which it is sharply divided is on whether um, agriculture has any place in places that are labeled parks, and specifically at Point Reyes. Uh, For decades, this controversy simmered kind of under the surface, Uh, people would say, well, we're really for the ranches, but we think the practices aren't right, or we think there should be more study. Um, Recently, however, and I think healthily, the fault line has has broken to the surface. And it's now clear that there are environmentalists who support the continuation of agriculture here and others who are suing the Park Service who really would like it gone. So perhaps a, uh, an adjudication and, a, and a, a real decision will come out of this, Jordan Fisher political S- and judicial. Thank you, John Hart. Uh, Jordan Fisher-Smith, what's at stake here in terms of 
having a local food shed. Uh, we hear environmental... You know, I think there's something even bigger at stake, and that's like, what is the human place in nature? And I think what pushes so many buttons in this park is that it is a very unusual situation. Normally, you know, at one time, um, the first uh, Hutchings and some of the first people who secured a freehold in Yosemite Valley were growing hay down there um, and, you know, and crops to... You know, they're running a little farm down in Yosemite Valley. Um, that was later done away with. The Lamar Valley at Yellowstone, which is one of the great places to watch wildlife, at one time also had, I think, about 350 acres of hay fields that they were growing hay to feed the animals in the winter to bring back these great herds of bison and, and elk and so on. But uh, by and large, you know, parks are considered natural areas, and the presence of a, what amounts to a historic landscape of you know, almost 19th century agriculture uh, through the 20th century, these old ranch buildings and these cows that have been there since the 1850s, represents a real anomaly in the, in, in the national parks. And what this thing boils down to, in a way, is, you know, do human activities belong in parks, or do we want to see, we want to drive out of San Francisco and see a kind of perfection, a kind of, you know, blank slate, a tabula rasa that amounts to what, you know, what it looked like before we were here. And I think that at the bottom, that's where the fight is, is, you know, do human beings belong in this landscape or should we see something without human beings? And that's a common strain that you write about is making landscapes like it was before the white man came here. Even in the Presidio in San Francisco, there's a move to get out indigenous, uh, you know, get out rid of the eucalyptus trees and get things before the army came, et cetera, to make it before man messed with it. Is that... Mm. And yet, you know, the National Park Service engages in, in landscape management of various kinds. Uh, the balds in, the, uh, on, in, in Shenandoah and some of the, these beautiful sort of high country meadows that sit up on top of the landscapes are being maintained as open areas to make sure that they resemble the historic landscape there. So, um, it, boy, this place is just, there's no end to trouble about Point Reyes. <laughs> it's not out there. I, I think a lot had, of you know this. It's we've like, had some, we're uh, almost afraid to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> well, they, it, it is. It is this. 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 There. There's one other park where there is considerable agriculture by in, intentionally, but uh, Point Reyes is, is very close to unique, and if this lawsuit prevails, uh, I think it will be clear that that. There will be no further such experiments in national parks, and uh, the the identity of the national park as a place that is partly wilderness and partly uh, visitor-serving development, with no other commercial activity, will be solidified. I, th- I think I, I personally think it would be a loss, but uh, it it would be clarifying. Uh, We're going to go to our lightning round with uh, Jordan Fisher-Smith and John Hart. This uh, series of true or false quick questions uh, for our guest today at Climate One. So Jordan Fisher-Smith, true or false, park rangers are more likely to be assaulted on the job than agents from the Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, As of 2000, it was 13.9 times as likely to be assaulted or injured on the job. (laughs) Jordan Fisher-Smith, in 50 years, national parks will be very different than they are today. True. 
follow up. They will have cell phone chargers attached to the trunks of giant sequoia and redwood trees for people needing to power their smartphones. Now, we'll all be running around wrapped in skins again. Uh, John Hart, winning two book awards from the Commonwealth Club is a highlight of your career. True. <laughs> um, right answer. Jordan Fisher Smith, you have considered engaging in civil disobedience to protest destruction of America's parklands. Wow. You do a lot of research, don't you? I did consider that if they built the Auburn Dam, I might have to leave the law enforcement officers and walk over, leave my gun and everything, and walk over to the other side and sit down with the protesters. You're right. John Hart, true or false, climate change is worse than even your Bay Area liberal friends realize. True. (laughs) Jordan Fisher-Smith, if you were president for a day, where would you create a new national park? I think I would have the national park of meaning and, you know, actual discourse. It would be a national park that would elevate the idea of language and, you know, can anybody believe what's going on right now? (laughs) So you'd you'd found the Commonwealth Club. Okay. Um, (laughs) This is, you're right. This is the National Park of Language. Uh, John Hart, if you were president for a day, where would you create a new national park? Nevada. I'd I'd do a, uh, I'd create a Great Basin National Park, which included both a mountain range and an intermountain valley with Playa. Jordan Fisher-Smith, what grade would you give Sally Jewell as Secretary of the Interior? Pretty good. Uh, Mainly, she stayed out of major controversy and got work done. John Hart, what grade would you give President Obama as a steward of our country's natural heritage? B. No no great mistakes, um, some nice initiatives, um, not uh, terribly... Uh, not a great deal of oomph behind it. That ends our lightning round. Let's see, how, how do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Let's, um, thank you. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Smokey the Bear warned us, only you can prevent forest fires. But as our guests have pointed out, fire does have a role to play in the natural landscape. Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal, agrees, after a fire, nature gets a chance to rebuild herself. But thanks to our changing climate, he says, it may not be the landscape we expect to see. With rising temperatures and in some places diminished or changed rainfall patterns, the ecosystem may not come back to the way we remember it. Um, You might see ponderosa, say, groves turn into a pinion-juniper mix or a pinion-juniper mix changing over to chaparral. That's going to be hard for people to wrap their minds around, you know, how, and this is, I think, again, the challenge of kind of wilderness in the, in the human age is how do we continue to have an intimate emotional relationship with landscapes, even as those landscapes change before our eyes? Because I think it's, a, again, it's a big challenge um, for the conservation community. How do we sustain our love, say, for Sequoia National Park if the sequoias start to move northward or up in, you know, altitude elevation on the range, um, or Joshua Tree, what, you know, what are we going to do with, there's no Joshua Trees in Joshua Tree National Park, or no glaciers in Glacier National Park. It's going to make these things a lot tougher. Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal and author of Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. He spoke with Climate One in 2015. 
Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests, John Hart and Jordan Fisher-Smith at the Commonwealth Club. So let's pick up there, uh, John Hart. Uh, new parks, Joshua Tree, three new national monuments, 1.8 million acres. Uh, a lot of that is uh, additional marine stewardship in the remote Pacific Islands. Um, not enough, not the right things. Now it gets difficult. I think uh, a president is actually terribly limited in what they can undertake and make stick. And certainly he's faced horrible headwinds all the way. Uh, what's, what, what's missing? Why don't I say A? Maybe being the environmental zealot I am, I just wish it, it felt a little higher on his list than uh, than I sense it actually has been. Jordan Fisher-Smith, President Obama, you know, Sand to Snow, Mojave Trails National Monument, uh, Pacific Islands National Monument. Not enough, not the right things? Well, I mean, you know, the this authority is actually in danger right now. The National Monument Authority... The Antiquities Act? Our Congress, the Antiquities Act is, you know, the congressman gunning for it along with everything else, including the Endangered Species Act. You know, we're living through uh, a a very, very oppositional time with Congress. And uh, so I I don't think you can assess the president's actions without considering the environment, that the political environment right now. It's hard to get anything done. Well, I want to talk about the the futures of of, of national parks. Pokemon Go is getting people out of their homes and out into the real world. There are now more active users than the mobile versions of Pandora, Twitter, and Netflix combined. The National Park Service is actually asking people to use the app in the parks with a little caveat. Let's listen to National Park Service Director John Jarvis jumping on the Pokemon phenom. This year, the National Park Service is celebrating its 100th birthday with a campaign called Find your park. We've got more than 400 places for you to find, and we know you've got to catch them all. Just make sure to keep your eyes open and stay safe. We don't want you stumbling off the path or running into some of our real wildlife while you're looking for the flying, swimming, and crawling creatures on your screens. That's National Park Service Director John Jarvis. John Hart, this is clearly, there's been a problem getting young people into the parks, getting kids off the couch, away from the computer games. This appears to have, be doing that. Is it successful? Is that a good thing? Or is it blasphemy to the idea that you go to a national park and you got your face in a screen? Well, I'm not very sensitive to blasphemy if it doesn't hurt something in the land. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not spooked on that score. It reminds me a little bit of another um, pursuit which is just slightly alien to me, which is peak bagging, in which, uh, you know, I've always been interested in going into remote areas because the remote areas are interesting. But in peak bagging, you pick your destinations because they are, say, the highest point of a county or a school district or a wilderness or what have you. Uh, So I don't, it's not my thing and yet it gets people to wonderful places. It makes a connection. And I'm not going to criticize anybody else's connection. 
Jordan Fisher-Smith, nearly everyone in uh, this San Francisco audience, which is uh, skews older, uh, didn't uh, recognize Pokemon Go. Is this a good thing for, for national parks? Well, this is just a very, a very smart audience. It's the Commonwealth Club. But, uh, you know, I, this nervousness about there not being future partisans of the national parks has been going on for years now. And I've heard uh, Director Jarvis talk about you know, getting cell phone use into the parks because they're going to have them anyway. And yet, you know, the national parks are, are seeing their highest visitation rates. I mean, they're skyrocketing. By all um, practical measures, the parks are a huge success right now, uh, regardless of, you know, I think this, there's been this general nervousness about the last child in the woods syndrome for, you know, about a decade that we're not going to have future uh, people to, to tell their Congress people to vote for these things. But boy, I'll tell you, by all accounts, they're very, they're very successful right now. I want to ask both of you about your climate epiphany, how you awaken to climate change, and then how climate change is going to change America's national parks. John Hart, when did you first have an aha or uh-oh moment about climate change? Well, I guess I've, I've been aware since even the 1960s about the... Um, um, the Arrhenius science uh, that said if you keep on pumping carbon dioxide, it would figure that eventually the earth would warm. It was more or less theoretical. Um, there was no sign of it happening at that point. And uh, it's, it's hard to recall now, but there was a period around, um, let's see, when was the Dukakis-Bush election? 88. 88. Uh, there was a fellow, uh, there had been a string of cool years, and there was a fellow traveling around the country saying that we were headed pell-mell into a new glaciation and that the only uh, solution was, he had big engineering solutions in mind. So th at that point it was, you know, it looks like it should be happening, is it? Do we understand this system well enough? But I guess a very... Very few years later, um, the signal was emerging if you were ready to look for it. it was so 90, I'll say, yeah. I'll just say 90. 1989, Jim Hansen testified before Congress. Yeah. 88. Pa 88, page one of the mm, New York Times. June of 88. It was a very hot summer. Uh, so and Yellowstone was burning in the hottest, driest summer of Yellowstone's history. Is that when it broke through for you, Jordan? 87, the year before, I started reading about climate science and, you know, the Keeling curve and all those classic things. And I fortunately wasn't reading about climate politics, which is still a befuddling thing. If you just stay with the science, it's a lot easier to read about, you know. Uh, uh, How will climate change national parks? National parks, you know, uh, will be a place to watch it. Uh, national parks are biological hotspots where we make sure that we have as, as many surviving species as possible. Um, and so we will be able to assess what's going on better in national parks than just about anywhere else. Um, and, you know, whatever happens, there will be something there. The national parks will, will be there and something will be there because we've created a container where life will want to be. And so we can watch the uh, 
watch it unfold. The, the glaciers melt, uh, the, the pine bark, bark beetle eat away at the forest. John Hart, how do you think uh, climate change will change the parks and our experience of parks? I like that metaphor of a container. The contents will change, but they'll continue to be richer than most other places. Uh, I think the the challenges to park managers, which only seem to grow, will also grow for this reason. And these choices we were talking about between intervening and not intervening are going to be omnipresent and harder. Uh, it will be terribly important to, uh, to have the data to really study uh, what's going on. And I think it may be important to... Uh, to step away from the uh, ideology that says you never intervene or the ideology that says you freely intervene and make a bunch of difficult choices changing from case to case between the one and the other. So I think, I think uh, farmers, this goes for farms as well, I think it's simply going to require us to be smarter and more educated and more careful in everything we do. Interesting laboratories and places to go uh, Go to a beautiful place and watch the end of the world. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you, and thank you both for your always eloquence. Um, you mentioned that Point Reyes has had uh, ranching ongoing since the 1800s, and you also mentioned that some of the conditions at parks have changed, including record visitation and also climate change. Um, my information is that studies at Point Reyes have shown that um, cattle at Point Reyes are responsible for 76% of the greenhouse gases at the park. And I'm just wondering what kind of intervention, if any, you think might be taken about that. Well, I hope that's for John Hart. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Susan. <laughs> John, you want that? <laughs> well, cattle do have impacts. Um, Agriculture does have impacts, and uh, there's no point saying otherwise. There is a countermeasure that um, is, is under discussion uh, on rangeland in general, and that is this, this um, new climate uh, or carbon reduction protocol uh, called uh, range, range composting, in which they have... Uh, learned by experimentation that uh, depositing a quarter to half an inch of compost on grazed land can really transform the, so the soil chemistry and the, uh, and the, 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 the gases that uh, uh, are absorbed or put out uh, to the point where conceivably, uh, if this were really widely applied and it's been accepted by the relevant authorities, uh, you could uh, zero out uh, the uh, greenhouse gas contribution from areas that are grazed. But I think this is an example of the need simply to be smarter in everything we do with the land and look for, look for things other than what seem like black and white choices. Problems could be solutions. Let's go to our next uh, Climate One. What is Mr. Smith's opinion of CBD's proposal to reintroduce grizzly bears to California? Oh, thanks. That's a great question. 
Well, let's just talk about grizzly bears for a moment. Grizzlies are, you, you know, they, they, they roam a lot. They move around a lot. And uh, the interagency team at Yellowstone eventually found that uh, a male grizzly had, uh, you know, a range of about 1,400 square miles. I don't think that we have an ideal situation in California to reintroduce grizzlies. Uh, I don't necessarily feel that way about wolves, but we've had a lot more human conflicts with grizzlies than we have with wolves, um, you know, in recent years. And, you know, I think, I think you, have to be, you have to be careful about creating a situation that develops such a backlash that it sets everybody back everywhere else. We are so lucky that since, you know, the, this book that I wrote uh, covers, Engineering Eden covers the, the sort of hourglass point where we almost lost the grizzly in the Rocky Mountains south of Canada. And now we're in pretty good shape, you know. There's enough grizzlies. We'd like to see them over into the central Idaho wilderness in the Frank Church River of No Return, and we've been looking for that for a long time. I, th- I think I would rather see them over there than I would in California. I just don't think even in the, the northeast quarter of California that we have the space for grizzlies. Thank you. Great question. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. I'd like to ask the speaker's opinion of the herbicides that are being sprayed in our national parks for the purpose of eradicating non-native plants. Mm, another great question. John Hart. I hate to give a one-word answer to that, uh, but... I'd I'd have to say that in many cases, um, herbicides are a lesser evil than the waves of exotic species uh, that they're designed to combat. You should use as little of them as possible, and you should use them in the context of uh, other methods, what they call integrated pest management. But I don't side with the people who are simply against chemicals. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Do you see the uh, recent decisions about the Drake's Bay Oyster Company as a harbinger of things to come for aquaculture in general and Tomales Bay and uh, the dairy industry, specifically in Point Reyes? We'd like to tackle that way. We knew oysters were going to come up. Okay, I knew oysters would come up. <laughs> well, during, during the oyster controversy, um, there was a fear that um, through a rather complex mechanism I won't trace that... Uh, well, maybe I have to, that oysters would be gone, uh, water would test a little bit dirtier in Drake's Estero, this would bring pressure to remove manure-producing animals from the watershed, this would be a lever against the, uh, the ranches elsewhere. Uh, what actually has happened, however, was a, a much franker uh, movement against uh, ranching in general that didn't require any such roundabout route. It simply said that under the relevant Park Service laws, uh, you should not have such uses in a National Park System unit, period. So I'm not sure that link, it might still, uh, I, uh, that's, might still be a root of argument, but I, I haven't seen it. Uh, I don't see any pressure on Tomales Bay aquaculture resulting from the Drake's Bay closure. Somebody may know better than I do. Jordan Fisher-Smith? You know, um, I think think it's worth being concerned about that, but, uh, you know, the Hog Island Oyster Company that has a lovely little place down at the Embarcadero here, 
uh, has partnered with the National Park Service and the National Marine Sanctuary in doing a study of uh, shell formation in, with uh, ocean acidification. As you know, the oceans are now a third more acid than they were before the Industrial Revolution due to the, them being a carbon sink that essentially makes carbonic acid. And uh, Hog Island is helping the Park Service and the uh, National Marine Sanctuary study this. So I think there's also some real positive signs, uh, uh, it, you know, at the same time as, as, as the fears we're talking about. And by the way, I mean, I've got to give the Bay Area credit. We have these, uh, you know, really acrid controversy o- over oysters. Everywhere else in the country, they're talking about open carries of AR-15s. <laughs> so I've got you know, to give you guys some credit about your concerns. <laughs> you know, here we we're about cheese and oysters. <laughs> it's more peaceful, isn't it? It is. It is. Let's, let's go to our next question at Climate One. I'm tempted to act, uh, ask about open carry in parks, but actually I'm going to get back to Point Reyes and ask the question of Jordan Fisher-Smith. We've heard John Hart say it would be a shame to remove the um, grazing activities in the park. And as you look at the top band of the picture, that's what we're talking about. That's the pastoral land and Point Reyes, and uh, a large part of it, not all of it. But my question is, um, is it fair to take enterprises that have been there for over 100 years, that are the dairies at least are all organic, they're using the most forward-thinking sustainable practices that I know of in terms of ranching practices, uh, is it fair to remove them from what later came, over 100 years later, apart? Well, you, you think I'm an expert in fairness because I was a park ranger, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the question, you know, there other uses, other commercial uses have been terminated in national parks. Uh, you know, float planes have been told they can't land on a lake anymore because the lake is going more toward wilderness. So I don't, I don't, I think that the real cutting edge is the question of whether this represents, whether there's an inherent value in this historic way of life and a historic landscape. But there's some other little wrinkles now. One is that uh, the exotic plants that are everywhere now have created a situation out there where if you take the grazing pressure off, we may have basically shrublands over most of Point Reyes and no more meadows. That what we have there uh, you know, would have been maintainable as a northern coastal prairie um, before all these exotics. We may now have a situation where if you take the grazing pressure off it, it may all go back to a thicket. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I can't tell you what's fair or right, but I do, as a, as a person who worked in, in national and state parks for a long time, I have a feeling for the question of that we are preserving both, uh, you know, primeval nature, wherever it still exists, but also historic landscapes and ways of life. There are lots of examples in the national park system uh, of preserved landscapes that have to do with how we lived you know, our historic ships uh, are an example of, a, you know, when you walk on the deck, you understand something about how it was to go around the horn in the 1880s. And that's, to me, where that question lives. I can't tell you whether it's fair or not. Thank you. Jordan I, Fish, uh, John Hart? May I chime in on that? Uh, looking at Point Reyes is, is like looking at one of those Escher diagrams where, where 
the perspective seems to reverse in a second. If you look at Point Reyes as a unit of the national park system and say, well, national parks basically don't have agriculture. This is an anomaly in our system. Let's get rid of the agriculture. You get one picture. If you shift the focus slightly and look at the Point Reyes uh, pastoral zone as a component of North Bay agriculture, North Bay range agriculture, uh, whose loss would be very detrimental to the rest of that food-producing belt. It's, uh, you look at it in that different context, and, the, and the, the slope of that staircase seems to reverse. John Hart is author of Farming on the Edge. Uh, he's our guest today at Climate One, along with Jordan Fisher-Smith, author of the new book, Engineering Eden. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next audience question. Hi, thank you both. Um, this question is for John Hart, but you can chime in too, Jordan, if you feel free. Um, during the lightning round, you say climate change is uh, worse than your liberal friends realize, John, and uh, the stresses are apparent at Point Reyes. With a changing climate and drought being the new normal, do you think it's wise that the National Park Service is considering an expansion of agriculture on the seashore without any environmental review? Um, the expansion part is news to me. Uh, there's a... Uh, How about cattle, drought, mm-hmm. climate? You know, I don't know. Uh, I haven't researched the water situation of the ranches on, on Point Reyes. Um, I can't answer that one. I'm, I'm ignorant. I do know that elsewhere in the county, outside the park, uh, ranchers are complaining that their springs dry up earlier in the year and that expensive water system investments are more and more necessary. Uh, The other, I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle, which is um, the uh, Point Reyes has not done a general management plan since 1980. And a lot of things have changed since then. And I think the the plank in the new uh, Center for Biological Diversity et al., uh, Uh, pleadings that uh, I find uh, strongest is to say that uh, a GMP should come before the specific plan about ranching, which they are now doing. Um, Of course, if you decide you have to do a GMP before you do a ranch plan to address these questions, everything gets delayed another five years. And the ranchers who are now uh, on year-to-year rentals, so to speak, uh, uh, can't make decisions or or get financing. It's tough. Uh, I would wish heartily that that GMP problem had been addressed about 10 years ago and uh, that the debate that's now unfolding had been had back then. One reason it was delayed was to get the oysters out of the way. I know we're almost done. GMP being general management plan. I beg your pardon, general management plan. I I know we don't have much time. I I think you have to remember also that a park is a teaching institution. It's not just a place. It's not just a blank wilderness. It's something to tell us something about our place on earth. And, 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 And I think that, you know, if you look back at the Carter administration, for example, there was a period of time when they were putting old-style panels, you know, solar panels on everything and trying to have composting toilets and so on. I think parks have a role to play in getting us through what we're about to go through. 
And I think that needs to be exploited. I think they need to be seen as universities of human beings in nature. Let's go to our last question. Welcome to Climate One. So in your, in your discussion, I noticed kind of a paradox between this idea of needing to manage nature in parks to preserve that vibrant nature that we see there today, and also this idea of kind of a primordial or pristine wilderness, um, even with like previous use and um, people on that land before using it. So do you really believe that um, wilderness in its kind of perfect form that we see, that we use today, um, do you feel that that term is still useful in today's context? Yes. The word pristine is, is, is really not useful in thinking about wilderness. Uh, and it's been used by the opponents of wilderness to defeat wildernesses by saying, that isn't pristine, therefore it, it can't fall under the Wilderness Act. There's an old road running into the mine. I, I would say we do away with that. What my friend Gary Snyder likes is this word wild, you know, wildness. And what we need to do to support what's about to happen, uh, the, the best outcome for what's going to happen is support wildness wherever it is, wherever it still is. The principle of wildness needs our support everywhere, in the park, in the backyard. Let's wrap up by asking you to tell people in the audience listening what they can do if they care about wildness, natural parks. What can they change in their diet, their lifestyle? What can they do to protect parks in the era of climate change? John Hart. <laughs> Learn a lot. Uh, that might not be the obvious answer. Uh, I, I bet you're already writing your congressman. Uh, but, but learn a lot. Understand the details of what's going on. Uh, we have two problems. One is trying to head things off so global warming doesn't get absolutely out of hand, worse than my liberal friends imagine. And the second is to uh, help uh, ourselves, help farmers, help park people to undergo the adaptations that we have to do at every phase. That learning institution model that you, you mentioned, Jordan. Jordan Fisher-Smith. I would say, you know, I, I had a fan that wrote me about a week ago about my book Nature Noir and said that she'd had all these formational experiences on the American River. I wrote her back and said, join Protect American River Canyons. They send out a newsletter so you'll always know what's happening to the river. If another dam comes, you'll know about it first. I would say adopt the place that your heart sings for and just be its angel. Be one of those people that always shows up at the Park Service meetings, no matter which way you feel about this agriculture thing, and adopt a landscape that you care about, and um, that's a good thing to do. One of the most eloquent endings ever on this stage. Our thanks oh, to thank Jordan Fisher-Smith and John Hart. We've been talking about uh, national parks and climate change and nature. Jordan Fisher-Smith, author of Engineering Eden, and John Hart, author of many books, including Farming on the Edge and Point Reyes. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the podcast online and join the conversation on Twitter using our uh, handle at Climate One. Thanks for everyone in the room and online. Thank you all. Thanks so much. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. 
Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.